Good evening, everybody. My name is Max Cohen. I'm the lead writer for the Museum of Crypto Art. You are listening to the Mocha Live podcast, or perhaps you're even watching the Mocha Live podcast live streaming on Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube, and joining me as he does every week, or most weeks. Well, every week that I'm here, he joins me. Uh, founder <laughs> yeah. of the Museum of Crypto Art, Colborn Bell. <laughs> Colborn, how you doing? Uh, I am super. I actually love being here with you talking about things. Uh, so thank you always for the time. Yeah, of course. Um, and my mic, unlike the last time we were on one of these podcasts, sounds okay. Let me get two thumbs up. Colborn sounds all right. I, uh, I told my mom, uh, because she listens. Hi, mom. Uh, to let me know if there are any audio issues. So I'm going to keep my eye out to see if I get any texts or frantic phone calls. Otherwise, let's get the show on the road. Today, we are talking about a kind of interesting trend um, that's going to be downstream of Sotheby's, the art auction house that everybody knows, and I'm not sure everyone loves. Uh, I'm a bit agnostic about it. But this is a pretty slow moment for crypto art. And I think even as we were talking about like what we wanted to talk about this week it was hard to like pinpoint anything there's you know we want to keep our finger on the pulse right but there isn't really a pulse um but kind of this undercurrent of this current like i think crypto reinvigoration that we're seeing um is the kind of dipping of the toe back by like the mainstream world into crypto related things and Sotheby's, i think is a really good example of that obviously to many artists Auctioning a work at Sotheby's is like a total dream come true. It would be like me having a short story in The New Yorker. Um, it must feel uniquely affirming. Um, like Hollowed halls like that are always going to inspire a feeling like that. But I think that there is not enough question. There are not enough questions being asked about a why is Sotheby's getting so involved in the crypto art space? Who are they auctioning their pieces to? Who's collecting these pieces? What is the incentive for artists to keep engaging with Sotheby's? Um, and maybe there is something even like predatory under all of this. So we're going to talk about all this stuff today. Colborn, any kind of just general overview thoughts on Sotheby's and this kind of wave of mainstream art auction people kind yeah, of trickling into crypto yeah. art? I will, I will preface a couple of things. I will say that, one, I was super adamant against art auction houses, didn't, didn't need them. Uh, and I've softened that position. Two, I'll say uh, I actually really like the people that are working at Sotheby's and the other auction houses as well. I have found them to be generally involved. I found them to be curious. I have found them to be doing good work and kind of like open to feedback. So I think the thing that sh could and should be challenged is the idea of like the, the hallowed halls of Sotheby's because unlike the New Yorker, right? This is, this is an auction house and you know, an auction house will sell anything. Mm. So, you know, just, I guess there is association by prestige of some of the assets that it sells, but those assets kind of run, run the gambits, you know, they are tasked with making like an exciting, live experience you know that that is uh that is that real life experience is hard to replicate online in like a meaningful and substantial way yeah 
Yeah. But, you know, during COVID, we were like having these things and like we kind of everybody knew each other. So you kind of knew the person on the other side if you were in a big bidding mm -hmm. war and it was kind of happening live and in real time. Maybe it's just like, uh, you know, the fact that the, the system has become so fractured at this point and so many varied interests. There's it seems to me yeah. there's just less unity. I'm really glad you brought up that point, by the way, about the people who work at Sotheby's um, and these auction houses, because I've heard the same thing from artists, which is that the people they're liaisoning with and the people who are individually reaching out are just good people. Um, and I think something I know I am guilty of is like implicating institutions, but I never want to implicate the people at those institutions. Yeah. Right. Because it's like, you know, you might think that I'm a shithead for what I'm writing, but I'm here because I love art. And I imagine that even if you think what Sotheby's is doing or some museums, maybe predatory collecting tact, you know, if you disagree with that, well, the people who work there are just art lovers for the most part. That's why they're there in the first place. So I do think that's a really good point to put forward. Um, and I'll say like the first Sotheby's natively digital sale that rocked, they got exceptional lots. They really dug into the history. Um, you know, that was like, an, they were uncovering and discovering artifacts that were relevant to the history. I am so keen for them to go and like discover and put context on uh, secondary sales. Mm -hmm. I have perhaps more of an issue when they delve into primary sales of work. What do you mean, like being the first people to actually get their hands on the so work? So like when provenance is from the artist and they are selling directly, yeah. yeah. As opposed to mm -hmm. going back and like, I, I get it's probably harder to find like, you know, interesting, relevant pieces of historical, you know, crypto art that they can bring and shed new light on. It's much easier to just tap an artist who they know has a collector and go to like a public display for everybody's benefit, well, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's where I start to feel a little fishy about the whole thing. And I will never chagrin any individual artist for making decisions that are you know, the best for them financially or the best for them you know, motivationally. Like That's not what this is about at all. Um, but I think it is still interesting that there is a lack of artists understanding the context in which we kind of all operate in, you know, when you give a primary sale to Sotheby's instead of say super rare, you are taking that primary provenance out of the crypto art sphere, right? You are allowing these, this mainstream institution, whatever their motives may be to be the benefactors of your kindness in your decision to, you know, launch your art into the world through that channel, right? Not a manifold contract where it's going to all benefit you, not a super rare contract where, you know, however your feelings on any given institution, at least it's like staying in the family, so to speak. I, there's just, there's just so many interesting things there, right? Because so much of it. Okay. So one, like a traditional contemporary living artist would never be caught dead doing this. This would be like the most heinous thing. When one of their pieces goes to auction, they hate it. Right. Because everything, is, is, done, everything is done behind yeah. closed doors. Right. You never mm -hmm. put a public price tag on anything. Um, so then there's a lot of like politicking to try and make sure that it does well. And it's a lot of like wasted effort away from the art. The problem is, is that those artists generally are not like living and dying by social media. So Sotheby's of course mm -hmm. has this big platform, right? They shine the spotlight that goes both ways when they choose artists, artists as influencers, perhaps. Um, mm -hmm. so they get like this 
collective social lift and relevance to the point where here we are today talking about them. Uh, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and, and then, you know, then also like when the sale is closed, it's, it's, it's not as public or as transparent. Like I can't go back and see mm-hmm. what things sold for. Yeah, I mean, this is um, there's that famous or semi-famous story um, about Matt Cain's auction uh, at uh, at Sotheby's, right? Which it so bears repeating. Yeah, the um, mule after uh, Monet. It's like a wonderful piece. um, Mr. Cain did in um, with inspiration from Monet's haystacks, right? And he brings it to Sotheby's, and it's one of the first like Sotheby's vetted NFT sales. It was a huge, huge deal, right? And a huge marker of validation for him, his art, the space as a whole. Um, and we talked about this in an interview we did a couple months ago, but he doesn't blame the employees. He doesn't blame anybody but the bidders. But there was a situation where somebody had bid on the artwork to the tune of, I think, $240,000, yeah. something along those lines. But the money was never transferred. Um, the bidding, the bid was accepted. Even now on the Sotheby's website, if you go to it, uh, it still lists that as the sale price. But the, you know that piece still sits in Matt Cain's collection. And the money, I assume, still sits in someone's you know, wallet. The only benefactor, it seems, of this whole thing was this, I don't know, this like Sotheby's page where it seems as if they were able to, you know, really validate Matt Cain, but the actual history doesn't bear it out. But again, it lacks the blockchain provenance that is so important to the space to begin with. Reminds me of two other stories. We'll start with the Matt Cain one is he also did something with Bonhams, right? And the Mm. collector uh, bought it, right? but they asked Bonhams to custody it for them, right? Mm-hmm. So this asset still sits with Bonhams. It's owned by, you know, some collector who has, has no idea. And now suddenly you have an asset that is in like custodial limbo forever <laughs> where like Bonhams is indefinitely like given the liability to hold something on behalf of a collector uh, who, yeah. who may or may not ever take receipt of the asset. Uh, and the second story is is Corey. Yeah, hold on, I'll, real quick, yeah. just by the way, like some stupid ass shit from these bidders. Because if you bought a Matt Kane <laughs> one of one, you know, however, two years ago, three years ago, for two hundred seventy five thousand dollars, it's a freaking gold mine. You know, to go into that sale and back out of it, like I'm sure they felt like they got one over. I don't know what the situation well, happens. But- happens all the time. And the second story I was going to say is is I remember like. Corey Van Lu had to go very, very publicly and say, like, Sotheby's, you have not paid me in, like, I don't know what it oh, was, yeah. six months, eight months, a year yeah. after the sale date. That's a trend, and, right? Like, that happens I mean, often. That happens all the time. I've heard that again and again and again. And, of course, that's not anything that, like, the people orchestrating the sales are. Mm-hmm. But there is some sort of receivership with money and things. Like, there's a huge benefit for this to be automated, right? And there's a huge like, yeah. uh, hassle off the back of the artist for this to be automated. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole idea of adding further middlemen into the art purchasing and selling ecosystem. Like, I, I do understand it. I really do understand it. But it, I, I and I guess this is, uh, you know, segues into my next thought, which is like, what is the benefit for artists other than the theoretical clout 
that comes from selling at Sotheby's, which is so, explaining, by the way. Yeah. You know, but it's it's the same collectors for the most part, the same collector base um, that it seems to be buying these pieces from Sotheby's that they would be buying from a manifold contractor, from super rare or from, you know, a, a wherever. So, right. So mm-hmm. it, one, it's like a dedicated setting for a sale, right? You, you can't super rare. Isn't going and saying like all of these people are together in this sale and we're making an event of it. Right. It's very mm-hmm. individual foundation maybe with their worlds is kind of doing this we 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 know what making it is kind of doing there where they do like once a month a drop and then the thing is is that there is a inherent collective social lift around the idea of the sale right like Mm -hmm. my body my business the the unicorn dow pussy riot sale like you you just see people coming together around the message around the moment and like uplifting it and for everybody that is involved there it becomes a moment right and it's hard for a single artwork to have like that moment when people are releasing and doing all sorts of things for attention Mm -hmm. all of the time um so i think that is like i don't think it's really even i mean maybe it's the clout of sotheby's I, i don't you know maybe they think that they can get something sold uh, but really, I think it's, you know, I think we're, I think artists are, are undoubtedly playing a social game. And yeah, sure. That is really difficult. And I know that continues to wear uh, and, and tear on a lot of really talented people. Yeah, I mean, I, I do understand that. You're saying things that like sound, like they make sense to me in a vacuum, but I, I guess I don't see the downstream effects of that like as somebody who's just kind of observing the space and observing the artists and I'm like this idea of there being an event right around these drops, like yes. And also no, like it almost seems like it's the, it's an event for the artists themselves. Right. Uh, you know, I, I remember, I, I don't remember when it was or what auction it was, or even whether it was Sotheby's or Christie's, but um, I remember seeing like drifter shoots had, he had been invited to one of the auction houses like actual locations and there were prints made of his work and he got to sign them and like you know the kind of value of being there in a physical room doing something with your art in front of people or what was it uh Fuocious, who was doing the the live painting like at christie's yeah. like but that seems like these are these isolated events right and um i, I mean when i hear you talk about like this as an event it almost seems like why aren't other entities within this space doing that? Right. Like that just seems like a kind of easy value add that, that Sotheby's doesn't have a stranglehold on. They just seem to have the like historical ability to put things together and put them out. I mean, there, there, yeah, look, there's a, there's a benefit from having uh, economies of scale. Right. The fact that they're doing this yeah. everywhere, the fact that they are in New York, London, Paris. Right. The fact that they can mm-hmm. kind of rotate through these locations, capture different people, uh, capture different audience. There is just that is something that Super Rare Foundation, no matter like what physical location they have, they'll just never be able to compete. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they have people in those organizations who have been running marketing events forever right and we begin to look at um like there is a professionalism broadly Mm -hmm. that this 
space lacks. And I think mm-hmm. people are craving that. They want to believe that there is something more um, than, than this space in which like the culture and the community and all the things of value was very quickly like degraded and, and raced to the bottom. Everybody just like raced each other to the bottom and now we're left to like pick up the pieces. So of course, going somewhere that has like more of a substantive weight and feel is almost, it's like a stepping out. But the reason that unsettles me and it does unsettle me is because, and I agree with you. I I remember we were on a meeting with the Mocha artist council and Sarah Zucker was talking about the lack of criticism within the space. And I took that in stride and I said, okay, well, I'm in a position to write criticism. I'm going to write criticism of, of art in this space. Right. And it's important, I think, to a lot of people uh, across the aisle, or not the aisle, but across the space to be building the things that are lacking within the space. And it does unsettle me somewhat that there is such a desire, so, so much of a desire to find X that is lacking in the space that people are willing to go outside and basically like take the hand of these larger entities that don't care as much about the foundations or the values of what was built here, as opposed to having a hand in creating it themselves or seeking it out within the space themselves. Um, that is a, a difficult precedent because, you know, there's like, there's always going to be, you know, we're a niche art space within like the art space at large, which is already so niche and, you know, if there's an opportunity to siphon value out of any of these spaces, there's always going to be a larger actor that's going to be able to put out something. They're going to have more money to uh, invoke more professionalism or give more perks. And um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm overreacting, but it unnerves me to see a really successful example of what I would consider a outside entity. Again, like intentions aside, being kind of led by the hand into this whole crypto art thing and saying, okay, well you have what we need. So, you know, everything else be damned, like show us what you got. I understand it, but it's still like, I don't know, hard to swallow a little bit. Yeah. Look at, you know, I, I think every, most of the people, 99% of the people that came to the space in the beginning would be considered outsider. Right. I don't think there was the very few, like insider uh, people to the system participate or maybe even still continue to participate. Um, mm. So everything we were doing was kind of on a good faith basis that we could do it. And then we did it and people saw that it could be done. And now we're dealing with a bit of a, like a tragedy of the commons, um, you know, crypto in both it's like permissionless way that cuts both ways you have to deal with everybody and because it's online you know there is no constraint to space so Mm. i think it uh crypto you know saw it in 2017 saw it again here there is a a cycle of of where you know there is real credibility but then people learn the playbook and they turn it into marketing and sales right Mm. and i don't think it's like any surprise that you know, all of the most of the PFP communities are just absolutely floundering right now because mm-hmm. most people were sold the idea 
of you know multi-billion dollar ip everybody wants access into this club we license everything everywhere and like somehow distribute it all back to the people that but like really you know <laughs> like who, who yeah. actually knows how to do that and most of the people that are able to like jump ship into like an entirely new uh sector are are prob are probably the people that do that every time something is hot i think so too i i think it's also unavoidable in a sense um you know i'm sure that I, I, somebody i think maybe it was mighty moose on the original post about um this uh topic of this live stream um had mentioned like punk rock right and punk rock going you know mainstream that's i like I think that's such a potent example. I, I think, um, you know, like Robness loves to make the punk rock to crypto art example. Um, I don't know. I, I do want to return to something you mentioned, though, which is that like 99% of the artists are outsiders totally, right? But also 99% of the people who got into crypto art originally, I think, have already been or will be kind of stricken from the narrative that will be written about it in 10 or 15 years by i don't think anyone's specific fault but by a host of factors some of which are insidious some of which are just the nature of i think the business and the nature of like any art movement or any kind of like artistic movement um but i think one thing that sotheby's does unwittingly is reinforces and codifies a certain like these tiers of artistry um that that are very random and again like there's so much good artistry here and i've made that point again and again like you could i think take any subset of 30 artists literally chosen at random from all of the crypto art that you know exists that we see every day and you're probably going to get an incredibly impressive uh variety of styles of inspirations of like technical abilities so not a a, a knock on any specific person again but it is arbitrary to an extent, right? I mean, all success in any kind of artistic field is going to be arbitrary, but like when Sotheby's takes the top 15 to 20 selling artists of the last six months and gives them a show and says, you know, here is the progenitors of this art movement. Like they value them above all, like they're reinforcing an already randomized narrative. And I think that, you know, the show like uh, my body, um, was it my body, my choice or my my body, body business? My body, my business, like that's at least an attempt to do one of these shows with some kind of like real context, like thoughtful context. Um, I think that there could be a lot more done and like maybe I'm even like disappointed at the lack of desire to contextualize and legitimize the space on behalf of these entities that to me show much more of a desire to, you know, maybe steal a couple of individuals out of it to give them more mainstream spotlight. But like, where is the love for all of this kind of gobbledygop in this like crypto art cauldron, you know, like where's the, where's the, their desire to bring context into the space when we, as I think a, a, a larger movement are so desperate to figure out ways to instill that context within ourselves. Does that make sense? I, I, it makes perfect sense. And I was writing about this today because it's also my problem of like, what does it mean for museums to begin to establish NFT collections, right? Because none of it, 
right? Art is so subjective, right? You can go back into the beginning. You know, some people get think it's terrible. It doesn't really matter, right? The art itself to me was super symbolic of like, we are standing here, like time stamping moments to say like, we were here and we existed and we sought to do this, right? And mm -hmm. pre uh, like market explosion is when that art actually matters, right? Everything else for me kind of gets created in the context of the market and it begins mm -hmm. to lose its appeal. So when the art becomes about marketability as opposed to like meaning or value or, or just like creative self-expression, well, then you've, you've lost me, right? So there is this inherent conflict always between creating something as a capital good, right? Or creating mm -hmm. something as a store and then you, 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 the artist as the brand. No, it was like crypto art as the movement, right? You know what this reminds me yeah. of? This reminds me of like classic rock bands from like the 70s, right? Who are in this moment and they're creating this art, right? And it's successful to a fault for however long and then 20 years later they can't create outside of the context that they've created for themselves right yeah they have to be aware of what they did before of what they didn't do before of how successful a b and c were before right and i think that i think it destroys a lot of our singular artists and a lot of like uh, across mediums right because everybody either becomes a parody of themselves or like a lot of people fall into pitfalls and traps because they are trying to avoid becoming a parody of themselves. You know what I mean? So super relevant example was a huge fan of LCD sound system until I mm. went to Brooklyn and saw the show that they have put on for like the last two years with like the MX VIP line, you know, and there they are playing like, and I'm just like, Oh no, like, something that I had just like, you know, had in my head, like here, 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 something that was like so free and raw and like pivotal to my youth, like suddenly has been like placed in it's, it's like almost getting a Las Vegas show for any artist, right? You, yeah. you are suddenly just the name and the songs and everything that you were, there is nothing else other than you do the same thing again and again and again because people have an affixed nostalgia to that creation and that actually like when i saw that show that really hurt and broke me and i mm. i was like you know these these poor people were once artists and now they're like a product yeah but i think the myth of that being avoidable is kind of just that it's a myth Right. I mean, you can avoid it at your own peril. We exist in capitalism, you know, it's it's once you've done something, then, you know, it's cap capitalist cement, capitalist cement. That's all I'll say. Yeah, but it's like it's like these the moving goalposts of success. Right. And it's like all any artist wants to do is have some kind of validated success. Right. All I want is for a short story to be in The New Yorker. But that doesn't just nothing just ends there right? There's always like a what comes next. There's always the follow-up, right? Like, this is a stupid example before I say it. I'm sorry in advance. But like, Macklemore, right? You remember Macklemore? 
he's not good at making music, but his first album had kind of a moment, right? Like yeah. there were a, I remember I went to see Macklemore regrettably and his openers were Talib Kweli and big crit. And, uh, at the time I didn't, I was like, come on, on with the Macklemore. Yeah. I admitted on the record as a serious faux pas, but you know, you have this moment and actually I'm going to change tact. I'm going to use a different example. Um, Victoria justice, you know, Victoria justice, Victoria justice was a uh, Nickelodeon actress. She was on uh, a show called victorious. Um, and you know, she was given all the like Nickelodeon Disney channel pop star, you know, th- that was her crown and she was being crowned. She had the show, she was given the record contract, right? She was going to do concerts. She was like 17 and like, it was all going to open up for her, right? Like she was going to be the next big thing. Well, one of the co-stars on that show was fucking Ariana Grande who like swooped in and stole everything that there was. Right. And I think about this a lot in the context of success, right? Cause there was this, this poor girl, Victoria justice, who was on the precipice of literally everything that every, a lot of, I imagine art focused children are probably pretty jazzed about the fame, the money, the success, all of it, the career. And then just like that, it's, 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 it's gone from you, right? Because you either made a misstep or didn't make a certain move, but like the, it's the goalpost of success, right? You have everything, but then it moves slightly to the right. So these artists who are, you know, getting these Sotheby's sales, right. Or being uh, asked to be in a Sotheby's auction for the first time and, and achieving that lifelong goal, that's always going to be dangerous, and, and the, the goalpost of what success means after that is going to summarily and necessarily move slightly to the right. And what does that mean for the next thing? Right. Because it, it doesn't stop eating itself like the desire for success. Right. You know, we have Sotheby's now and that's, and, and you know, I, I think they're probably here to stay in some kind of symbiotic way with crypto art, but like what's next, right? What happens when, you know, the mainstream appeal is now more important. Like, are we going to have artists who are like, you know, designing ad campaigns for you know, Pepsi. Um, and, you know, I, I know like Rafik Anadol had a, a Grammys or he designed the stage for the Grammys, which is super cool, right? Like awesome for Rafik Anadol. But like as the the need for more success changes form because it becomes larger and larger and larger and it's a larger and larger hole to fill, like what does that bring in here, Right into all of this i mean look say it a million times there is no there there right there is no final Mm -hmm. destination i think what we saw with like the claire silver louvre drama um was that as equally high as you like are willing to go there is just going to be a whole another group of people that will like kind of tear it down um Mm -hmm. and i think you know there's obviously a lot of issues with all of that but you know there's there's incredible cheerleading and then i don't know it's just vicious like life lived online in the speed of the internet is incredibly unsustainable uh Mm -hmm. and you know we live in a 
unfortunately a world of just everything as celebrity. That's what it feels like, true. you know, and then, and then it's just, you know, once you kind of uh, accept that for yourself and you begin to like sell yourself as a product, well, then you lose like humanity. And, and this is, I think, kind of like the core of, of all of this is, you know, what, <laughs> what is and what isn't for sale in mm-hmm. everybody um and like what isn't for sale is is probably where the art is i mean i i, I do think it is and maybe this is all art i you know i maybe i'm lacking the art history background but like i i think these little nuances of like speech and technology make their way into how we conceptualize the world I'm, i talk a lot about that i think a lot about that but like the fact that like every artwork that we see is inherently for sale right like it's and it's it's part of putting it out on any platform it's part of minting it is it's going to have a mint price right especially if it's on a platform right whether it's on sotheby's or whether it's you know on super rare foundation or maker's place or anywhere you know that you can't extricate the fact that if you scroll down from the artwork there is a reserve price on it even if it's an astronomical reserve price like that's just always the goal is to sell and I get why that's the goal because you have to sell to then give you the freedom to keep creating and you create and you sell the creations and like that all makes sense to me. But again, it's like, how do we're, I think we're like caught in this weird place where we're defining success in multiple ways. We're defining success financially. We're also defining success creatively, but they're now kind of like coming into conflict with each other in a way that at least in the last year and a half that I've been kind of following this really closely, I haven't really seen yet. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can, uh, you can go and you, you can go to the Met, right? You can see a, a marble sculpture and you can be like, this is exceptional. I could never create this, right? But I do not have that same discernment of like somebody who is crafting 3D assets, right? I don't know if they have gone to whatever it is, like Stockfish and just like, grabbed some things or like the guy who stole the chair or the chair like assembled it, you know, like it can take people what like 10 minutes to make an artwork. So again, that mm-hmm. is like, for me, that is like the, the moment of, you know, what, what is artistry in this day and age? This is also one of the things that's so hard and it's always been difficult for me about visual art specifically in that, like, it is so subjective. I think it's subjective on a level more than any other art form, right? You know, literature, like sentences need to physically, like they follow a grammatical structure, right? Like music needs to follow a melodic structure or it needs to be discordant in a way that is intelligent. Otherwise it's going to sound like, you know, the inside Mm -hmm. of a mechanics shop, right? Like every other art form, except for like pure visual art and some poetry, um, has rules that they have to follow, but visual art has zero rules, right? If you can see it, it's art, right? We've litigated this time and time again as at various epochs of society. It's all art, right? And that gives you so much freedom, but it's also like so paralyzing. (laughs) I, I have to imagine as somebody who doesn't make visual art at all, that it can take any form must be so paralyzing and an understanding quality out of that um, you know, it reminds me of the interview I did with Claire Silver, where she talks about the concept of qualia, right? That kind of like wordless 
she said it so beautifully. I'm going to paraphrase and butcher it, but it was like the wordless experience of experiencing something um, like how it feels to see an art piece and feel something right. Not the feeling that you're feeling, but the feeling of feeling that something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have to say just as a, as a collector, I have not felt in a long time, the need to go in and even like look and see and try to collect. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that means like what I was doing when I was collecting was I was healing myself through these expressions. Right. There were people that were speaking to me through a visual language, something like a purer form of what I had desired of crypto when I entered in 2017. Right. So mm -hmm. I was reinvigorated and I was seeing a lot of myself in that. I don't really relate in the same way with a lot of like the top selling stuff, it's meaningless to me, right? Mm -hmm. It might be like pretty abstract picture or it, you know. And it might be meaningful to other people. It might, you know, it might be for a different audience, but. Yeah, I mean, yeah. maybe, you know, there, there is, but there is a, like a visual purity or like this clean line aesthetic or like a, like a, code generated thing that never sat well with me because I think I, I really don't want art to placate. Right. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't understand. I don't understand that anymore when it feels like we are in a time of like turmoil and substantive change and like an expansion of consciousness and a reawakening of like how we reset and redefine values and I always considered the artists of this movement to be like the people who had to bring people forward into this and help teach them. But instead I see a lot of the opposite of just like, of just like a, a plain clean aesthetic might look good on a wall. doesn't really have any like bite. How much, um, how much of that do you think has to do with the fact that most of the people creating here are like younger Right. That's like twenties, thirties, forties, right? Like there's few, few journeymen. I mean, I, I think the younger people yeah. frankly get it more, right? They look up I and they're so. like, things are fucked up. Like what world are you people living in? Right. Mm -hmm. I think it's generally the people, I think it's generally the people that are like, that don't have either like the job opportunities or, you know, the people that are, kind of struggling it's not the people who have like found their place within capitalism and you know and this even this market right but i think i mean just like more artistically right like I, and i think that this is a an age-old or rather um like endless argument but you know where do you see the artistic value coming from is it people who are you know throwing their first spark into the world or is it those people who have honed some kind of artistic language or some kind of artistic um, ability over the course of a very long time right are we prioritizing like old per like an old man's art or like, no, like a, a young bucks no. art? i want to know what the kids are feeling and what the kids are saying right That's so interesting yeah yeah i don't yeah. care what you know somebody because i don't believe there there is mastery i think we i think generally as we get older we move away from the source Right. And I think we look up when really we, we should be looking to the other way. We should be looking, you know, at the younger generation to 
like identify the problems and tell us where this thing is going. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's so different based on like art form too. Um, Cause I think literature generally benefits from age. Um, I think people grow more empathetic and more ex- ex- obviously more experienced, but uh, more like wide ranging and what they've kind of internalized. And I think for literature specifically, that's the greatest boon you can have music obviously is a young person's game. And that's why we're still listening to the same albums from, the same bands in their seven, you know, in the 1970s who were then playing their greatest hits tours. Yeah. I mean, I, I said it again and again, like crypto is a kid's game, right? Like mm-hmm. get me that person who is like fresh out of college that wants to like write a program that is going to like change the world. Right. That it doesn't have the limitations already in place of how or what something should be right? Like pure idealism. Let's see what you can create and manifest with a piece of code, right? Let's see what you can like create and manifest from like inside of your bedroom. Those were always the compelling people to me, like the people that were, were trapped. They, you know, I, there's, I mean, there's a million stories out there, but ferocious is always like, it's me pretty, pretty hard because, you know, that's, that's cool. I mean, there's, there's a million. There's many cool stories like that. No, of course. Um, if Fiosha's story is amazing and Fiosha still manages to have a pretty inimitable art style, like this many years after achieving like real, a real uncommon kind of fame too, um, both within the space and without the space. And I, and I, you know, I think that's wonderful for all of those kids who are in those situations everywhere in the world. It could be anything right to have like, you know, to, to know that it can be like channeled and it can be crafted and, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what you're going through, but like how you begin to express those, those feelings and share those feelings. You know, not to, you know, veer wildly back to the previous topic, but like, I, I, I think I'm in agreement with you and I, I do seek out and or feel most invigorated by these kind of like radical solutions to things, these radical visions of things. And that, I guess that's why, and I, I, I think the through line of this whole conversation for me is like, I do continue to be a little bit, I don't know, disappointed at the way Sotheby's and these other mainstream kind of auctioneers and, and institutions have just dipped their toe into crypto art and found a, a real, um, thriving population of people who are interested in what they're they're putting down right because it feels like capitulation it feels like at least in some part a desire to take the easy way to something as opposed to you know some kind of raucous electric vision of something better right and i you know i have been the, the through line of my working life right at all these restaurants and companies whatever like pre mocha was I would come in and someone would say, man, you should have been here a year ago. It was so great. Oh, you should have been here six <laughs> months ago. Like you just missed it. Yeah, like it yeah, was awesome. Yeah. And uh, like that doesn't have to happen here, but I feel like every time, you know, artists choose to put something on Sotheby's instead of figuring out some novel way of getting it into the hands of uh, new collectors or, um, you know, at, at the, are working on an artificial deadline for some reason because of some, you know, mainstream something or others um, need for an asset on a certain day. Like that does feel like 
it's inching closer to you know the end of something am i being way too doomsaying i feel like maybe i'm being a little <laughs> no no i don't i don't think so i think um because you're supposed to be the doomsayer and i'm supposed to straighten you out yeah i feel like <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know this one is this one is tricky it's i just think we probably where we failed most is that we didn't like make it a welcoming place to all of what could have been new, right? Mm -hmm. What could have been new. And I think what happened instead was that a new market was created and opportunists mm -hmm. saw a chance to capitalize on that. So what, what, what does that mean? Like a place for things that are new? Like, we, I don't know if it's giving, you know, probably a lot of those people don't have, they don't have Ethereum, right? Or they might not know how to set up crypto wallets or maybe, maybe the, you know, a lot of it, frankly, is just like selfless education, right? Mm -hmm. Or it, it, I remember how exciting it was to find somebody like new on Twitter and be like, hey, have you heard of this thing? Like, let me help get you started, right? Mm -hmm. And how many artists I, I haven't found or even reached out to like an artist that I've seen in a while asking, and maybe that's because like the market is saturated. I don't think that's the case. Um, mm -hmm. But there was a massive turning point of where it was like, okay, like come into this thing. It's safe. We're all in it together. And then it just fragmented into individualism and i think especially to the younger generation that is just a major uh like turn off like this is not for me this is it, because what was more like collectivist became hyper capitalist so i don't know how I, to like yeah. go back and like well, I'm trying to go back and like build new products that begin to like redefine what this technology can be for people and make it more participatory, like through access. It's just, it's, it's so hard is it's these, like, you know, it's, it's the ideas married to the realization or the understanding of the limitations Right. And like, or the limit, you know, I, I, I think it's really kind of profound what you were saying about, you know, you have these young people who come in and they have no idea about the limitations because they are under experienced, but that affords them such freedom. Yeah. Uh, there was this uh, Orson Welles video that made the round the other day. Maybe you saw it, but um, it was Orson Welles in some interview, I think in like 1960. And he was talking about uh, Citizen Kane and how it was his first time directing a movie, first time in a movie studio. And he was able to do so many things. Uh, because he had a good camera operator and he didn't he didn't know the limits of what things were deemed impossible at that time so he was willing to at least try everything that he could possibly conceive of because to him nothing was impossible he didn't have that education um and it's so i don't know it's so frustrating to find yourself in that chinese finger trap mm. of like you know the more you try and extricate yourself by internalization understanding the further you are from being able to escape into something else um but i'm like i'm 
I, I hope that there are these people who are coming in who are ready to like break things. I feel like there is a general need for things to be broken, not like like a fundamental like shift of everything we're doing here. Uh, maybe, I mean, you you would obviously have more ability to contextualize this, but it feels like things are kind of running their course, um, or like this is like the again not to doomsay because I'm not doomsaying, but like it seems like we're at the beginning of a transitional period. Mm. Um, right. As these, uh, you know, and I'm just using Sotheby's as the stand in for everything, but as the Sotheby's come in, uh, the various Sotheby's and the, these kind of, uh, ideators kind of trickle out back into the mainstream, there's going to be room for a niche to be filled by the next thing. Right. And it feels like we're on the cusp of, we're all waiting for the Messiah. Right. I mean, the saddest thing about life is that the humans are incapable collectively of making exponential leaps, right? You know, maybe, I don't know, you go back, you look at like tiger economies with tech and how I guess nations kind of are, but it's like never enough. It never feels enough, right? Individuals Mm -hmm. are capable of making exponential leaps. Like we made collectively an exponential leap but it's like two steps forward and now we're now we're going one step back um mm-hmm. because everything returns to the medium right it returns to the mean everything everything has to eventually regress and that's what they call mainstream adoption unfortunately yeah sure it's interesting yeah i think it's a good place to leave it but i think we should come back you know next week or in a couple of weeks and I think we should revisit this idea of like things breaking on purpose or like maybe things being broken from the inside out. Um, I don't know. I, I want to dwell on this, but I think this was a great conversation. Colborn. What do you think? Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, thank me, you. Thank you. Me too. Um, I'm not going to talk about the Celtics, but <laughs> go Celtics. Colborn, you're off to Argentina in a couple of days. Am I We're right? We're going to be down in Argentina. We got an event down there. If you're in Buenos Aires, come check us out. We're going to be at Art Lab. I don't know what the date is, but check out. Check it 31st out. 31st to the 4th? I will be there the 25th to the 4th. Yeah, but the event, right? It opens on the 31st? You could be right. No, I'm the... Come I'm, to Art Lab. I, yeah. Eventually, there will be an event there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be awesome. A bunch of artist installations. Uh, we're just going to be down there. Super excited to meet everybody and and feel that spirit. Cool. Well, as uh, Colborn, you're well aware, we are, or at least were for a moment, the number two arts podcast in Argentina. So you're going to get an absolute stampede of, uh, of folks coming out to our lab. Shout but- out Argentina. We love you. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, sticking with us for another fun-filled edition of Mocha Live. We'll be back next week with some more insights, and uh, that's it, just insights and smiles. (laughs) My cat might be here, too. The cat might be here, too. (laughs) Um, Thank you, everybody, for listening, and uh, we will talk to you again real soon. Coburn, you got to say goodbye. Goodbye. The audio-only version. Right. Goodbye.